The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. And so there's uh, several questions about the what I view as the facilitators of M&A, which is strong stock price, availability and access to financing, as well as having confidence that if you announce a deal, it will close. That was Anu Iyengar, Global Head of Mergers and Acquisitions at JP Morgan, just after she addressed a gathering of the deal-making community where the outlook was uncharacteristically downbeat. Welcome to The Exchange, conversations with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, the Global Corporate Finance Editor for Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm at Reuters. For this week's episode, I'm coming to you from New Orleans, where I sat down with Anu Iyengar following her presentation at the Tulane Corporate Law Institute, where a thousand or so bankers, lawyers, proxy advisors, and other members of the M&A community convened for an annual get-together. It has been a tough start to 2023 for them. Worldwide M&A volume has fallen by nearly half to about $470 billion. That puts it on a pace for the weakest first quarter in a decade. Chief executives and boardrooms have retrenched for many reasons. War in Ukraine, inflation, higher interest rates, aggressive antitrust authorities, and the threat of a recession are just a few of them. And then along came the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the rescue of Credit Suisse by rival UBS. Anu used a brick wall in her slide deck to illustrate what the industry is up against. Like others in attendance, she tried to put a brave face on the situation, but it's proving hard to overcome the low levels of confidence that are draining the lifeblood of the merger world. Anu gave me her realistic assessment of the situation and pointed to some pockets of optimism. We covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Give a listen. So Anna, you were just um, had the sort of the dubious honor of being the banker at the center of this somewhat big legal mm-hmm. conference. And you started out your presentation with this idea of like a brick wall that's kind of M&A mm-hmm. practitioners are up against. Talk us through some of the bricks that are in that wall as a start. Thanks for having this conversation. And it is interesting that in this environment, in some ways, a banker is more needed to explain what is going on, whether it is to clients or even the legal community. And so that is actually interesting uh, because when everything is going smoothly, you need less explanations. In terms of the impediments that uh, you see in the current environment, there is geopolitical risk. We are still in the middle of a war. There is continued concerns about uh, China and what may happen there in addition to Russia, Ukraine. Plus, there is economic risk, rising inflation or not tempered inflation, rising interest rates. What does it mean for growth in the economy? How strong will the consumer consumer continue to be? M&A, which is strong stock price. the availability and, and access to financing, broader, as well as in terms of having confidence that if you announce a deal, it will close. And the regulatory challenges, the increased level of litigation on deals, and the increased time between signing and closing also increases uncertainty. And uncertainty is not good for M&A. But again, this is the market where 
proactiveness and creativity will be needed to get deals done. So given that, I mean, over the arc of your career, what has that done to the confidence of your clients, the CEOs, the boards? Is it like the lowest you've ever seen? Is it like, where, how, where do you, I mean, obviously yeah. we've had the GFC, like we've had all sorts of things, but like, where does this rate for you in terms of confidence levels? Yeah, so through my career, I've certainly seen a few such uh, uh, times. And I, I don't put what we are seeing now close to I, either of the the internet bubble or whatever you wanted to call it that happened in the late 90s, early 2000, or the global financial crisis. Uh, there are some similarities to the COVID shutdown because there was a time when you had to adjust to a new normal. And I think there's some element of that because for so long we've enjoyed an extremely low interest rate environment, quantitative easing that has been unprecedented. Whereas what we are now experiencing, which is interest rates, which kind of makes sense, and um, Fed that is trying to contain inflation, it's just a lot of the people who are in the working world, especially in the tech sector, weren't in their professional lives in 2008, 9, and 10. Right. And so to them, this may seem like it's a, a lot more acute than it is. Whereas if you've actually been in the business in 2008, 9, and 10, you know that this is very different from what was happening then. Right. And so, you know, at the, and then at the end of your presentation, you had sort of this whole idea of like breaking through the brick wall. Mm -hmm. Which one of those bricks is going to be the easiest to dislodge? Which one's the most important to try and start building up? Yeah, um, I think again? some of those things are not within your control, right? Geopolitical risk is not within your control. Whether a deal will get approved from a regulatory perspective or not is not entirely in your control. However, the reason uh, I think in order to have an overwhelming desire to go through the brick wall is because the market values profitable growth, scale, and stability. And it is hard to deliver on that without doing M&A. So you have a strong motivator that companies have to want to do it. But practitioners, bankers, lawyers, proxy firms, PR firms, all of us have to find creative, innovative ways to make those deals happen, which is why I had the analogy of breaking through the brick wall, because if you just do things exactly the way you did them in the past, which was a very easy environment to do M&A, it's not going to work. Or waiting to say, oh, I still want to wait to get really cheap debt and I want the equity markets to go back to where it was in 21, you're going to be waiting for a really, really, really long time. <laughs> and you don't have that because you do have challenges in the business that you have to solve. And M&A is a very good toolkit for tech enablement, for supply chain challenges, and to deliver on this expectation that the market has of profitable, stable growth. One of the big topics that came up also to that end on the panel that you were subsequently on was this idea of trying to bridge the gap between what sellers are expecting and what buyers think is the right yeah. in terms of valuation. I feel like we're, we're, I don't know how many months into that kind of reset. I mean, it certainly started with tech um, and others, but 
it feels like we're kind of deep into that and it still seems like getting consensus on that is not happening. Uh, I don't feel like we are that deep into it because when you look at it, the first half of last year was very robust, extremely robust. And in the second half, it, it wasn't about seller-buyer mismatch. It was much more about availability of financing and questions about what was going to happen from an economic perspective and geopolitical perspective. But really the expectation was the equity markets were going to come back beginning of 23. This is, I'm talking second half yeah. of 22. So I, I think today there has been a recalibration of that. So that recalibration I'd say is sometime in the beginning of 23. So then w when you say that, usually it takes about two quarters. So, um, and by the time you get to the third quarter of 23, you've, you've kind of cycled out of your 52-week high as well, because most of it happened in the first half of 22. Okay. So that's, that's when I would try to calibrate and say is, and for stuff to happen, the, then the question is, are you going to see deals getting printed in the third quarter, or are you going to see beginnings of conversations? And I think it's, it'll be a mix of both, because some people will wait all the way to then to say, okay, maybe I should begin to have conversations, whereas some people will try to get ahead of it. Yeah. And that's why I was saying, you know, it's end 23, early 24 in terms of right. seeing a robust revival. So, yeah, and a lot of the, the impediments that you listed are things that we've, the market has gotten accustomed to over the last year, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's geopolitical or actually somewhere around the one year anniversary that's of right. the invasion, um, the interest rate risk, um, you know, the, the regulatory risk, people start to started to figure out what Jonathan Cantor and Lena Khan were all about. Mm -hmm. um, but now, like, so, okay, everyone's getting used to all of that. Now you've just had, a, like, a bank crisis mm -hmm. kind of blow up. How, is that a big setback? Does that, does that mean maybe Q4 is not, maybe really is Q1? Mm -hmm. I mean, how? I'd say the, uh, the biggest impact I see from the, uh, the bank, uh, uh, news that you've seen recently is on the consumer sentiment. So ironically, this may have had a bigger impact on the consumer sentiment than everything the Fed has been doing in terms of increasing rates. Because you saw the inflation data was strong, consumer spending continued to be strong. But if the consumer feels less confident, they're going to tighten. And if they tighten, that's going to impact inflation. So, and that's why I think Fed's comments was what they were, which is we're gonna wait and watch and see. Because if it has an impact on consumer spending and sentiment, which then translates to inflation, then Fed can moderate action accordingly. So that to me, I think is the bigger question mark, which is a impact of what is happening with the banks as opposed to that itself. Because if you look at it right now, the two banks we are talking about are of the 4,200 banks, relatively smaller banks, and the industry segments that they were focused on were very uh, monoline or relatively narrow. Uh, but the big difference between 2008 and now is also uh, the impact of social media, right? So something that would have probably taken four days or something 
was four hours because of how quickly you know one tweet or something can impact sentiment. Um, it's not even reality; it's just impacting sentiment. Right. Uh, and so I think that that is that that is a little bit different. But no, I I, I wasn't recalibrating okay. on that basis. But the question mark for me is, how does consumer behavior change? Because boardroom confidence is one matter, and I think boardroom confidence was affected a little earlier. I think this can have the impact of affecting consumer confidence. Okay. And so where, when you put all that together, where do you see pockets of um, optimism? Or like, where will the deals be done? Are they hostile deals? Are they spin-offs? Are they breakups? Like, is it like where, there's always something to do, even yeah. in the face of all this. So where are you sort of looking? So the, um, as I mentioned in the presentation, there are about a handful of places where uh, I expect to see activity. Um, increased level of unsolicited conversations where a seller is not proactively putting themselves up for sale but a logical buyer is coming and knocking on their door and trying to have a conversation and to figure out if there is a meeting of the minds and if there is a way to bridge value in order to get something done. Some of these will get done, some won't, but there is increased level of conversations in that category. Second, I'd say, is companies where you can get a deal done where the capital structure remains intact. So this could be companies which IPO'd in 2020, 2021, and uh, there is not a technical change of control, so you get to keep the debt in place. Third place is uh, corporate clarity transactions. There is still value in focus and separating out pieces which are non-core and the spin transactions also have the benefit of being self-help meaning that you're not waiting for a regulatory approval you can just do it and the timeline is in your control so you'll probably see more corporate clarity transactions the private equity firms have become diverse themselves so they have 2.2 trillion of capital dry power to deploy and many of them have multi-strategy funds, so they have the ability to play across the capital structure, which enables you to more creatively structure deals and figure out the economics, as opposed to doing just the traditional LBO transaction. And the last one, which we haven't seen as much of, but in some ways should be easier to do, is stock for stock deals, because if both the stocks are depressed, then there is a corporate finance argument to do stock-for-stock -stock deals, even though you've really seen cash being the predominant uh, currency that has been used in the last several years because people want the certainty of cash. But if people get comfortable in doing stock-for-stock -stock deals, even with long regulatory timelines, that could be another avenue also. Interesting. What, um, I mean, you know, the talk at the end of last year obviously was about private equity, really focused on that and the dry powder that's available. There were known knowns about um, the financing markets mm -hmm. on that. You've just been involved, I think, with all three of the big that's transactions right. that came out. You know, I guess the question people have is like, is this, is the market reopening? Is this like a, you know, or are, are you know, is that these anomalous, these deals? 
what's going to happen? What's your view on private equity now? Well, JP Morgan is fully open for business. <laughs> and and uh, like you said, we were involved in, uh, in, in all the deals in the market and we are uh, responsibly deploying capital. We did that last year and we are doing that this year also. And I'd say in addition to that, there is plenty of capital that is available in the banking system, right? So if you look at um, all, uh, some of these deals, there are several banks who participated in it. And in addition to the banking route, you also have private credit market, which did not exist in 2008, 9, and 10, which is over a trillion dollars in size. So it is, it is partially the people who are borrowing accepting the new reality of the terms of borrowing as much as the availability of capital, uh, as well as the, I'd say, the bigger impediment to deals happening has actually been the buyer-seller valuation mismatch rather than access to capital, though in, in the last few weeks it's been a bit tighter than, uh, than in the past. But I expect uh, people getting comfortable with the new normal in terms of interest rates, the new normal in terms of the terms of financing. And uh, I don't expect financing to be the impediment that'll probably get solved first before the seller-buyer value mismatch. Interesting. I mean, you talked about JP Morgan being open for business. Mm -hmm. One of your competitors is no longer open for business, given the transaction we're seeing in Switzerland. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just the competitive dynamics. Does that affect the market in any way from your vantage point? Oh, look, I think a healthy, robust banking system is good for everybody. And that's something that we're also committed to, right? in terms of whether that is um, leading a group of investors and making investments in, uh, in a bank or, or facilitating transactions. I think the UBS Credit Suisse transaction that, uh, that you referenced was something that the Swiss government was behind and wanted and wanted to create a Swiss uh, national champion. And uh, they kind of stepped in and did that very quickly. And that has actually been pretty well received in the European markets. Of course, everybody needs to immediately understand it, but um, I've been very uh, pleased to see the market reaction there. Okay. And then it's just uh, to, to, to sort of tie a bow on everything, I guess, how are you, what was your sentiment sort of coming in, preparing for the, the presentation you were going to give? And then the feedback that you've heard, the meetings you've had, the people you've talked to, how, like, what have, how are you coming away? Like, is there synchronicity or has your view been swayed based on what you're hearing from the people here? No, so I, as I mentioned from the time I was asked to present here to when I actually presented, I think what I was going to talk about changed because I think what is happening in the markets and interpreting that to, for this community as well as talking about ways in which you can navigate this market to get things done, that became my focus, as opposed to um, traditionally what bankers may have done at this, uh, uh, at this conference. So I've actually gotten pretty good feedback on that uh, lens and approach. Uh, there are some who told me that uh, this was realistic and that is good. There are some who said we wanted you to be optimistic, whether that is realistic or not, and you should have come there and said there are no problems and deals are happening and things like that. So I, th I think what is best and uh, is is to 
like I said, correctly explain what is happening and then think innovatively about how to navigate it. Because pretending that uh, things will go back to the way that, were, that they were in 21, 21 was an anomaly and an exception and waiting for that to come back is not the right way to uh, be an M&A banker. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Anu. I appreciate uh, you taking a few minutes to chat with us. Happy to do that. Thanks. Good to chat. My thanks to Anu, and thank you very much to our listeners. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lam in Toronto and Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes of The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast. Also, check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, signing off until the next episode of The Exchange.